Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is uh, Marian Tupi and I'm, I'm a policy analyst in the newly established Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Uh, two days ago on Wednesday, uh, we had a policy forum here at Cato with Andrew Mwenda, a Ugandan journalist and a public figure in, uh, in Uganda as well as an opponent of uh, President, President Museveni. He urged Western countries to stop aid to Africa because he believes that foreign aid undermines democracy in Africa. It undermines the need for economic reform and also because it encourages corruption. And yet, in today's media, uh, much talk is being, uh, is being had about the need to double, sometimes triple, foreign aid to the African continent. In fact, the, the question about African development seems to center around the issue of foreign aid. And that is really unfortunate because the correlation between economic growth and, uh, and uh, foreign aid is inconclusive internationally. And when it comes to foreign aid and Africa, the correlation seems to be, in fact, uh, in fact negative. And therefore, I always welcome those who try to refocus the debate away from foreign aid more toward the idea of free trade. Because free trade is one of the most important mechanisms available to humankind to escape poverty. The British government has uh, done a great deal, and, the, uh, and Prime Minister Tony Blair has done a great deal as well of talking about the need for uh, helping Africa to escape poverty. But can they achieve anything? So long as Great Britain remains in uh, the European Union, so long as it remains um, tied by the rules of the common market and of common agricultural policy, it is really impossible for the United Kingdom to unilaterally liberalize her trade with Africa and with the rest of the world. And so in the absence of concrete steps toward trade liberalization, Tony Blair has opted for what so many other leaders of the developed world do, which is to say distributing more aid to Africa. Developed trade liberalization aside, very few politicians have the courage to point out the elephant in the room, which is, of course, African protectionism. Andrew Mitchell the shadow secretary for economic development in Great Britain is not one of those politicians. He recognized that Africa is one of the least integrated uh, continents or regions in the global economy. He also recognizes that one of the biggest problems is that African countries do not trade with one another. And it's for that reason that he proposed Pan-African Free Trade Association or agreement a few months ago. Andrew was educated at rugby and graduated from Cambridge where he studied history. Andrew was the president of the Cambridge Union back in 1978. Before university, Andrew served in the army in the Royal Tank Regiment before joining Lazard where he worked in, uh, with British companies seeking large-scale overseas investments. He was elected as Member of Parliament 
for Gelding, is it? That's how you pronounce it? Gedling. Gedling, sorry. <laughs> in 1987 and re-elected in 1992. During this time, he held office as the government whip and as Minister for Social Security. He also served as Vice-Chairman of the Conservative Party between 1992 and 1993. In 2001, he was elected Member of Parliament for Sutton Coldfield, and two years later, in November 2003, he was appointed Shadow Minister for Economic Affairs. From September 2004 until the end of the parliamentary term, he was Shadow Minister for Home Affairs, and following his re-election in May 2005, um, Andrew was appointed Shadow Secretary of State for International Development. Ladies and gentlemen, please let me uh, please help me welcome Andrew Mitchell. Well, Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed for this opportunity today to contribute to uh, your discussions and to your thoughts. I'm very honoured to have been invited to the Cato Institute. Um, and delighted indeed to be in uh, Washington again. Um, I'd just like to start, if I may, by putting in context the uh, remarks uh, of uh, the chairman today about uh, aid. When I took over this job, um, something over a year ago, uh, I realised that there are essentially three parts to international development. The first part is, and the most important by far, undoubtedly, is trade, because it is trade which enriches uh, nations and which lifts poor people out of poverty. But the uh, second part is undoubtedly aid, and aid well spent can make uh, an enormous uh, difference. I would part company with the chairman uh, on his suggestion uh, that we should give any support to the comments that were made here last week by um, your Ugandan friend. Uh, the idea that you should withdraw aid uh, uh, fr from Africa because in some cases it has a perverse consequence um, is uh, not, uh, in my view, a sensible uh, argument. And the third element, of course, is conflict resolution. And I want to say a word or two about that at the end because I think the importance of conflict resolution uh, is often underestimated, though I'm sure it's not underestimated in as distinguished a think tank as this. If I may... Before I turn uh, to uh, the Pan-African trading area, which I proposed a few weeks ago, uh, just say a word or two more um, about uh, aid, because I've been in meetings this morning with the uh, World Bank, and yesterday I had the pleasure of uh, meeting the managing director of the IMF, and uh, I think it's important to try and ground the debate. Many of you may be familiar with the works of uh, Jeff Sachs on the one hand, and who's, who's very pro-aid and believes that basically a large check uh, with lots of noughts on the end written out to African governments is the best way of relieving poverty. And on the other hand, Bill Easterly, who believes uh, that aid uh, can have very perverse consequences and has typically not been well uh, spent. Um, and in my view, uh, both are a simplification uh, and that the truth lies somewhere in the middle. And you will take your pick as to where... That, uh, whereupon that line, the truth actually uh, lies. Uh, I think we've learnt an awful lot of lessons about aid, and we need to be conscious that the world community has decided to spend a lot more money on aid to the developing uh, world. And the negotiations around the replenishment of IDA that have been taking place, the discussions at Glen Eagles last year, all of these discussions are about how uh, we should be committed to putting more money on the table. However, 
this is a very short-term measure if we don't carry the support of taxpayers in the developed world for such spending. And in my own country, we are planning to increase the spending on development aid from what it is today at about £5 billion uh, sterling to something like £15 billion sterling uh, in the year 2013. Indeed, you may be uh, interested to hear that the only spending commitment that the Conservative opposition have given uh, for the time after the next election, probably in 2009, if we are elected, it is, the, is on international development. It is the only spending commitment that we have given at this time. And we will only be able to do that and to spend this amount of money uh, if we are able to persuade electorates that it's worthwhile. And that is the great challenge for the aid industry. In my view, it's not to get involved in debates as to whether you should give aid or not. It is to focus on whether or not you're getting 100 pence for uh, every pound, 100 cents for every dollar that you're spending in this area. And for me, uh, the yardstick is very simple. Uh, the aid industry has been beset by the big planners, the top-down planners, the people who believe in putting money on the table, the people who are obsessed with inputs, whereas, of course, the real question is whether this money gets to the village at the end of the track, which doesn't have water or a school or a clinic or even the basic elements of healthcare, And that is the measure for the aid industry. The developed world has said that they will put this money on the table to be spent, uh, and there's no doubt at all that the World Bank, through IDA, spends money uh, on the whole extremely well. But the question is whether or not this is going to translate into effectiveness in a way that it hasn't over previous years. I believe it can. I believe that a focus on uh, outcomes and outputs is absolutely essential, uh, and I think uh, that uh, empowering those who are receiving aid, giving them some choice, building civic society so that politicians can be held to account by the people they are supposed to represent is an enormously important part of, uh, of aid. It's not just about money to provide health and education or even capacity building or even infrastructure. It's also about building civic society which can hold uh, politicians to account. Now, I've no doubt those views will promote some questions, and that's a good thing. And I'll stop my remarks uh, at that point about aid and move on to the issue of uh, trade. And uh, we should be in no doubt at all that trade is the most important way of lifting poor people out of poverty. Uh, if you look around the world today, you will see that the societies that have lifted people out of that classic definition of uh, poverty, where we see today a billion people living on less than a dollar a day, something like half the world living on less than two dollars a day, if you uh, look at, over recent years, who has lifted the most people out of that form of poverty, uh, the answer is India and China, where they have entered into the international trading system, where they make things that people want to buy internationally. They uh, welcome foreign investment. Uh, they have uh, produced services and goods which are tradable and uh, which are bought. And uh, there are hundreds of millions of people around the world, particularly in India and China, who've been lifted out of poverty through trade. And as we all know from those of us who have studied Adam Smith and the wealth of nations, it is free trade which enriches nations. And that's uh, uh, an incredibly important argument, which in every generation has to be won. Uh, there are continual protectionist elements around the world which threaten that argument, and some of them even are here in Washington, and as your chairman said, they are certainly present in the uh, European Union. Now, I had the pleasure of meeting one of your trade negotiators yesterday, John uh, Verano, 
Um, and I visited Geneva recently to see for myself what was happening at the WTO talks. And uh, there is no doubt at all that the protectionist elements that exist overwhelmingly within the European Union, but also here in farming support in America, uh, are at the heart of the troubles that the WTO is in at the moment. And we have to face the fact that American cotton subsidies in the, uh, in the past have blighted the life chances of the cotton growers across that belt of sub-Saharan Africa. I went last year to Mali and met in the principal cotton-growing area of Mali the farmers who, partly because of American protectionist uh, policies, are unable to sell what they produce on the international market. And the thing that I remember about that visit, apart from the way in which these farmers explained that because they couldn't get a fair price for their cotton, they couldn't educate their children or even pay for uh, basic health care. The thing that I was struck by was the fact that they all knew and understood how the international trading system was working against them. The farmers, the poorest farmers in the most remote parts of Mali, uh, and I was in one of the most remote parts of Mali, understood the way in which protectionism was working against their and their families' interests. And the trade round is the right opportunity to enable us to address uh, these inequalities in terms of trading uh, results. Um, and I hope very much that the WTO will be re-energised in the coming months, that the Doha round will not be allowed to uh, fall away. Certainly in America you have some responsibility for ensuring that that happens. Uh, overwhelmingly we in Europe have some responsibility. As the chairman explained, we do not bilaterally negotiate in Britain on the trade round. We are part of the European uh, Union uh, negotiation and indeed it is a point from my party that when Britain had the presidency of the European Union last year in the run-up to Hong Kong, we were not able uh, to make sufficient progress there, partly because Britain had not used that opportunity to bear down on the protectionist instincts of French farmers and ensure uh, that the uh, European negotiating position was made more constructive and uh, freed up. Now, Mr Chairman, over the last 50 years, the world has been getting freer fairer, more open and richer. Global inequality has declined. As I said earlier, India and China have lifted millions of people out of poverty. Once desperately poor countries in Southeast Asia are now economic world leaders. But Africa has been left behind. It remains a continent mired in poverty. Africa's share of world trade has declined from 6% 25 years ago to less than 2% now. Take out South Africa and it's just 0.6%. The EU, the US and Japan cling stubbornly to their massive and economically irrational protection. This hurts their economies and those of the rest of the world. But even in the face of this injustice, there is a lot that the people of Africa can do to help themselves. So today I want to propose a pan-African trading area, an area that could unleash the entrepreneurial dynamism of the people of Africa, that will remove some of the barriers that are holding people back. For too long, we've assumed that Africans should simply be trading with developed countries, but we've overlooked the great potential for Africans to trade with their neighbours. And in doing so, we've ignored a powerful potential driver of African growth and development. Countries 
which are open to trade enjoy higher living standards, longer life expectancies, better working conditions, and better recognition of human rights. And countries that are getting richer together have less incentive to wage war against each other. Trade brings so many benefits. It facilitates voluntary cooperation between people all over the world and increases the range of goods available to people. It allows countries to specialise in what they produce most efficiently, thus leading to greater poverty reduction and wealth creation. And it is blind to race, creed or religion. Most people believe that poor people should be free to trade with each other and they should be free to buy and sell from us in the West. If people want to buy cheaper goods from abroad and spend the money they save on food or medicines, they should be free to do so. Saving a few cents when buying a bag of rice makes little difference to you or me or to the rich, rich elite in poor countries. But to a poor family, it could make the difference between eating at night or going without. I now turn to why a pan-African trading area would be a step in the right direction. Ultimately, our vision is a world without barriers, a truly free and fair trading regime. The best way to get there is through ambitious and successful multilateral negotiation. The WTO has enormous potential to generate subsidy and tariff reductions, which would help poor countries. But in any event, the current logjam means that we need also to think about other measures to encourage trade, especially the often neglected issue of South-South trade between developing countries. According to Oxfam, in the 1990s, South-South trade generally grew at double the rate of world trade, but Africa has participated less in this growth than Asian and South American economies. The World Bank has estimated that African countries would gain as much from liberalising their own agriculture as from European liberalisation. African tariffs are some of the highest in the world, while OECD countries cut tariffs from an average of 23.7% to just 3.9% in the 20 years from 1983. Sub-Saharan Africa only cut its tariffs from 22.1% to 17.7%. And astonishingly, many African countries impose tariffs on the import of medicines and even Tanzanian-made anti-malaria bed nets. These are effectively killer tariffs. While the world as a whole cut tariffs by 84% between 1983 and 2003, Africa only reduced theirs by 20%. For most Africans, it is harder to trade with those across African borders than with distant Europeans and Americans. And in 1997, the World Bank found that countries in sub-Saharan Africa imposed an average tariff of 34% on agricultural products from other African nations and 21% on other products. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the results are clear. Only 10% of African trade is with other African nations. Meanwhile, 40% of North American trade is with other North American countries, and 68% of trade by countries in Western Europe is with other Western European nations. While North America and Europe have been getting richer through trade, Africa has been left standing at the touchline. 
The world has lifted more people out of poverty in the past 50 years than at any point in human history, but Africa is the continent that is being left behind. The lack of intra-African trade is a missed opportunity. Africa's barriers are seriously undermining the continent's prospects for development. They are preventing specialisation between African nations, hindering productivity, growth, and clogging up Africa's wealth creation engine. And there is another form of barrier that doesn't appear in the formal figures. Roadblocks and arbitrary fees issued by bureaucrats within countries have stopped trade for too long. The economist's Robert Guest found that a journey in Cameroon that should have taken him three-quarters of a day took him four days. Customs posts are hotbeds of corruption, while roadblocks and arbitrary fees demanded by bureaucrats and policemen along the way have hobbled trade for far too long. Unless these informal trade barriers are tackled, millions of poor Africans will have no option but to continue to pay over the odds for essential goods. And Africa continues to suffer from chronically weak infrastructure. Increased trade between countries creates a demand for better roads, something Africa desperately needs, and provides the wealth to build and maintain them. (coughs) Unless these informal trade barriers are tackled, millions of poor Africans will remain shackled in poverty. We believe that removing these informal trade barriers within countries are just as important as the formal trade barriers between countries. There is a growing consensus that Africa is damaging its economic prospects by restricting intra-Africa trade. As Oxfam has said, increasing trade and investment between developing countries by reducing trade's barriers could bring real benefits in terms of employment and incomes. We welcome the growth of the African Union in conflict prevention. It should be matched in the field of trade. Unfortunately, the trading systems between African nations at present are a spaghetti bowl of complex, small, regional agreements. Therefore, we should support the creation of a single pan-African trading area for all sub-Saharan African nations, where Africans, from Senegal to Swaziland, are free to exchange their goods and services with one another without restriction, where goods can cross borders, tariff and quota free. Of course, this is a decision for Africa, but we can show leadership. The British Prime Minister should host a summit for African leaders to promote such a deal. Some of the aid for trade money recently announced at the G8 could be used to fund a secretariat to facilitate negotiations. By fostering interdependence, a pan-African trading area could help to defeat old animosities and promote peace in Africa. By creating larger markets and promoting specialisation, it could help generate wealth and reduce poverty. This would bring us closer to the peaceful, prosperous Africa that we all want to see. But there is that third element, so important in Africa, about which I just want to say a few words before I close, and that is conflict resolution. And the truth is that you can have as much trade and aid as you like, but in the end, if you are dispossessed, burnt and driven out of your village, no amount of trade and aid is going to help your position until the shooting stops and the conflict dies away. And so much of the international development muscle must also be directed at stopping conflicts starting. Once they've started stopping that conflict and once the conflict is over, 
reconciling communities which have been at war one with another. And the real test for conflict resolution at the moment in the world is what is going to happen in Darfur in Sudan, where today, as yesterday and next week, two million people are living in squalor, in camps, where uh, people in the aid industry, like saints, are trying to keep them alive and keep them uh, secure. Uh, where something over 400,000 people have been massacred in what your government quite rightly calls a genocide. And the United Nations, uh, and don't forget the United Nations is not a country, it is a secretariat, and it is the sum of the countries which make up the United Nations. The United Nations has passed Resolution 1706, which says that the UN should be deployed into Darfur, but only with the express permission of the government of uh, Sudan. Uh, and also, uh, we have faced until very recently the real uh, prospect, hideous to contend, that the African Union, who are the uh, troops who are inadequately policing uh, the arrangements on the grounds in Darfur at the moment, would leave Darfur on September the 30th and go back to their home countries. Uh, but the UN would not be deployed because of the resolution under Chapter 6, depending upon permission from the government of Sudan. And that would have been like the world allowing the fox in through the gate of the chicken coop, locking the door and turning its back and walking away. Because, make no mistake, the government of uh, Sudan and their militia allies have made it clear that if they get the opportunity and the world turns away, they will massacre these people in a genocide that we have not seen since Rwanda and which the world promised we would never see again. And I therefore call today upon America to use its muscle, along with its allies around the world, to put unprecedented pressure on the government of Sudan and on President Bashir not to continue with the genocide which they have pursued in the past in Darfur, to enforce the no-fly zone which was set up by the United Nations in 2004 but never implemented and which could be enforced from NATO assets across the border in uh, Chad, in Nejamena, where France has an airbase and NATO has the ability to enforce uh, this no-fly zone, to pursue uh, overseas the network of financial assets of the government of Sudan uh, and hit them uh, where it hurts, to make it absolutely clear that the 49 indicted members of the uh, government and administration in Sudan in a sealed list by the UN should be sent to the International Criminal Court in The Hague and face uh, charges of crimes against uh, humanity. And above all, that we should reinforce the African Union, upgrade it, and make sure that it can protect these two million people who already straddle the border in Chad and who are living in fear and desperation at this time. When the uh, world, Mr Chairman, turned its back on Rwanda and nearly a million people were massacred in a period just over uh, 13 weeks, most of them dying uh, from attack by machete, not even from a modern form of warfare. The world, uh, in its despair afterwards, promised that we would never see this happen again. Uh, on Darfur and Sudan, and Darfur is an issue in America which unites almost everyone, from Hillary Clinton to President Bush, uh, we uh, must ensure 
that following another genocide, we don't see another round of books from the developed world saying that uh, we must never allow something like this to happen again. That's what happened, ladies and gentlemen, after Rwanda. This is our watch. We must make sure, through public opinion, that we do not allow this to happen again in Darfur. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you very much uh, for your contribution. Now, I'm happy to say that even though we don't agree on 100% of uh, the remedies uh, for relief of African poverty, um, one is always happy to see an ally when it comes to free trade, because free trade for many decades uh, was underestimated as a mechanism for uh, poverty relief. And uh, this, this new upsurge of interest in, foreign tra in, in uh, free trade, including uh, the, the par partial acceptance of free trade by Oxfam is, of course, very heartening. Uh, our next speaker is Richard Tren, who is the founder and the director of the Health Advocacy Group Africa Fighting Malaria. He has conducted uh, considerable research over the years uh, into political economy of malaria control and published widely on the topic, including uh, places like Wall Street Journal Europe, Wall Street, Wall Street Journal Asia, um, Investor Business Daily, and so on. He is a council member of the Free Market Foundation in South Africa and a fellow of the Institute of Economic Affairs in London. With his co-author, Dr. Roger Bates of uh, American Enterprise Institute, another British uh, expat, he wrote, when politics, he, he wrote, When Politics Kills, Malaria and the DDT Story, which was published in South Africa, in the United Kingdom, in the United States, and also in India. Both scholars also wrote a Cato study, South Africa's War Against Malaria, Lessons for the Developing World. And I'm very happy to say that uh, Richard Tren and his team recently scored a major victory when uh, uh, the World Health Organization reversed its uh, uh, decades-long ban on DDT, which is one of the most efficient um, insecticide which is available in the war on malaria. But today, Richard will not talk about malaria. He will discuss uh, another one of his specialties, which is uh, his research into import tariffs that developing countries, including countries in Africa, impose on uh, imports of medicines and uh, medical equipment. Uh, Richard's research was very influential uh, for people around the world, including myself, uh, who did not realize that African regimes uh, place tariffs on life-saving medicines and therefore um, exacerbate the humanitarian crisis on the continent. I'm very happy to welcome you, Richard, here today. Thank you. Thank you very much, Marion, and thank you, Mr. Mitchell, for your uh, very interesting remarks. Um, as Marion said, I'd like to talk about uh, import tariffs uh, on, and, and medicines and, and how they affect access to medicines uh, and to healthcare. Uh, a, a couple of years ago, I, I, I worked with some businessmen in South Africa who were doing a, a trip down the entire length of the Zambezi River, starting up just uh, near Angola and going all the way through in canoes out to, uh, to, to, to Mozambique. Uh, uh, um, and I think this is some sort of midlife crisis coping mechanism. But, but be that as it may, they, they decided to use the opportunity to raise some money for malaria control. And that's how I got involved in, in trying to identify some, some worthy projects that they could spend uh, or that they could donate money to. 
one of those things was to, was to uh, help out the, the government of Zambia in their malaria control program at Livingston, which is at the Victoria Falls. And what they needed for their malaria control was uh, some insecticides and some spraying pumps, which uh, they would use for indoor spraying. And this kind of um, intervention needs to take place before the rains begin uh, and before the mosquitoes start to breed and the malaria transmission season begins. So the timing is quite important, but we had plenty of time. We, had, we procured the insecticides and we procured the, uh, the pumps, uh, and we sent them off. And I'm very happy to say that the the Zambian government, in their wisdom, exempts uh, charitable donations from uh, having to pay import tariffs, which is good because we didn't actually have the money to pay the tariffs after we bought the, the products. But the problem was that the process of getting the exemption was so slow and onerous uh, and difficult that we uh, never actually got the goods to the place in time. We completely missed the spraying season. And so thousands of people went without having their houses sprayed uh, in protection against malaria. Uh, all because of uh, a completely intransigent uh, bureaucracy that really didn't care very much about what the Ministry of Health was trying to do. There were the people at the borders and, and in the uh, tra- trade ministries just you know, dotting their I's, crossing their T's. Um, so ever since then, I've been, I've been interested in the way in which import tariffs and, 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 and uh, non-tariff barriers affect access to medicines. Few people in the poorest parts of the world have access to uh, a, a ready good supply of medicines. In, in some countries, access like in some such as Uganda, access is pretty good. But in other countries like Nigeria, it's disastrously low. Uh, the this lack of access costs millions of lives every single year. And the, the critical reason, of course, is is just sheer poverty and the and the lack of uh, good medical infrastructure that, that accompanies that. But there is, of course, uh, a lack of political will in many cases, and, and, and that can be something which, which can be turned around relatively, relatively quickly. Of course, it's, it's important to, to remember that it's the sovereign right of any government to, to raise revenue as, as they see fit. But it, it seems very peculiar in, in countries where there is this disastrously low access to medicines for a, a government to then go and slap uh, import tariffs and then further sales taxes uh, on life-saving medicines. It seems to be uh, a, a particularly uh, pernicious and, and a regressive and harmful way of, of, of raising money. This, incidentally, is, is uh, something which my colleagues Roger Bate and Jason Oback and I have, have looked into, and we are trying to campaign for, for governments to, uh, to remove these tariffs. And this is a view shared by uh, the World Health Organization uh, and Health Action International that in, that in 2004 did a study of uh, medicine pricing in, African, in nine African countries and called on those countries to remove their tariffs. Uh, last year, Richard Lang, an economist at the World Health Organization, did a, a great study looking uh, at this and came to the same conclusion. And I, and I was happy to see that at the recent G8 meeting in, uh, in Russia, uh, the G8 and, and their ministerial in their, well, in their health communique they similarly called on the, the removal of import tariffs and Kofi Annan did so as well recently so uh, so what, what, what we did Roger, uh, Jason and I we, we looked at the degree to which uh, countries impose import tariffs on medicines and the effect of those medicines and we, we had reliable data for about 151 countries and we're grateful for to Richard Lang at the World Health Organization for, for help with in, in his data collection and also in advice on how to do this, and we, what we did is we looked at the uh, 
the harmonized system of, of, of which is a classification of of, of, of of products produced by the Customs Cooperation Council, um, and uh, so so we looked at completed pharmaceuticals, uh, the active ingredients, and then also other things that go into a uh, a, a health system like bandages and gauze and needles and things like that that are, are just as important. There are some minor differences between our work and, and Richard Lang's work, but our basic conclusion uh, is the same. And, and I quote from Richard Lang's paper that concludes that it is vital that policymakers, both at national and international level, address the issue of tariffs on medicines and recognize the regressive nature of these duties, which ultimately tax the sick without regard for their economic status or ability to use these medicines. Pharmaceutical tariffs could be eliminated without adverse revenue or industrial policy impacts. What we found was that while many countries have lowered or entirely removed their import tariffs on medicines, many countries still maintain and regularly impose import tariffs, sometimes by as much as 20% on average. In some countries like Brazil, Peru, uh, Uganda and Tanzania, the overall uh, tax and tariff rate can, uh, can increase the cost of medicines by, by more than 30%. There are some other highlights, um, perhaps lowlights. Uh, Iran has such high tariffs that we actually had to exclude it from our, um, from our analysis because it's, it's skewed our, it skewed our analysis. Morocco and the Democratic Republic of Congo regularly impose uh, very high tariffs. Um, in, in the latter case, it forms quite a substantial part of their overall uh, gov- their, their legal government revenue. The East African Customs Union imposed an import tariff of, of 10% on, on medicines. I'm happy to say that uh, Kenya uh, re- uh, re- earlier this year re- removed their, their 10% tariff, partly in, in, uh, in response to um, campaigns by activist groups, but there was a considerable amount of pressure from local drugs industry to, to, uh, to maintain those tariffs. So so, so much like the, the 22, well, originally the 22 countries that form part of the, the GATT Uruguay round, the pharmaceutical agreement of the Uruguay round, um, uh, that, that removed all tariffs, the Southern African Customs Union uh, has entirely removed its uh, import tariffs on, on all finished medicines and active ingredients. Um, many countries have, have, have lowered their tariffs, but they, they still remain. Some countries... Uh, have given exemptions for antiretroviral drugs, which is, which is I- important. But people in poor countries don't just die uh, from, from HIV-AIDS. There are all sorts of other diseases that people die from. And, it, and if it makes sense to exempt antiretroviral medicines, surely it makes sense to exempt TB drugs and, and malaria drugs and, 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 and all medicines. Um, Generally speaking, the, the revenue raised from, from, from tariffs uh, on uh, on, on medical products is not spent on, on, on medical care, on, on, on health budgets, although it's very difficult to know uh, how governments are, are spending their money. But in four countries that we found, Ecuador, Lebanon, Nigeria, and the DR, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, the revenue raised from pharmaceutical tariffs um, is equivalent to more than 1% of their health budget. So this is something which should be, uh, you know, could cause some concern, but I think what's important is that they're you know, raising tariffs, um, raising revenue from, from tariffs on medicines is a particularly inefficient and uh, regressive way of, 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 of raising budgets and uh, collecting revenue from, from personal uh, income taxes or sales taxes might be a, a more efficient and better method. So 
uh, with, our, with the countries that we looked at in our products, our econometric analysis uh, found that income level, perhaps unsurprisingly, was the most significant uh, positively correlated variable uh, determining access to medicines. Wealthier countries have better access to than, than poor countries. However, tariffs are also uh, highly statistically significant uh, as a negative determinant of access. Countries with higher ta- tariffs on average have low access. And, and I think our key finding is that uh, lowering of tariffs could, least, could lead to an, uh, an increase in access to essential medicines. And this association is strongest, uh, we found, for, for vaccines. Sales taxes, uh, like VAT and other sales taxes, are negatively correlated with access, but we, we couldn't find a, a, a statistically significant r- relationship. And that may be because th- those taxes are, 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 are raised broadly across an economy, whereas uh, import tariffs are um, levied at one point and perhaps indicative of a, a more closed and less free and therefore less wealthy uh, e- economy. Um, one of the findings of, the, of, the, of Richard Lang's paper from the World Health Organization um, was that, that the amount of money raised by tariffs and the benefit to local producers of import substitutes uh, would not be significant and therefore would not be a reason for the tariffs to remain. And while that may be true theoretically and may be true if you're looking at the, the benefit of an economy uh, and a country as, as a whole, it's not true in the real world where individuals and firms use the political process to advance their own, uh, their own agenda. Uh, somebody always benefits uh, from a tariff, and normally those defenders of tariffs are well organized uh, and are, are, are pretty well entrenched. And so what you need is a, is a, uh, a consistent and broad-based campaign to, to, to get change. Um, one of the things that we've been really interested in is in the way in which tariffs um, create additional bureaucratic uh, burdens. Um, and so we uh, started looking at, how, uh, at the, the uh, corruption and delays associated with, with tariffs um, on, on, on medicines and medical products. Uh, the... What we what we found was, and this is, you know, I was interested in this because obviously of my my history in trying to get some products in, in, into Zambia, and our our survey, which admittedly was small, but we, we got some, some some good data from some uh, some, some big um, trading trading houses, was that in in eighty five percent of cases uh, there were significant time delays at borders. And also in approximately 85% of the cases that we found, there were, there were um, non-obvious legal charges were, were levied. Uh, and over, in over 20% of the time, uh, the, the delays required some, some, some time for, of lawyers and obviously the legal fees that, that that entails. In about a third of cases, an out-and-out bribe was demanded. Um, these delays and these charges and these bribes obviously... Uh, are exacerbated uh, by the tariffs. Uh, in, in many of these countries, the incentives to uh, extract illegal rents from importers would remain without the tariffs. I mean, you, you, these uh, border customs officials will always have the right to inspect goods. Um, but removing the tariff, especially if, there are, if the tariff rates are variable, uh, removes a, a, a very nice opportunity to, uh, to, to extort bribes and, uh, and Create corruption. Uh, the it, it, what's interesting is that the, the, the when it comes to, to unnecessary delays, we found that the worst cases were in Nigeria and Kenya, 
followed by India. The countries that that most routinely we, that we found most routinely demanded bribes um, were was Vietnam. But perhaps as a consequence, the delays in getting goods through, into Vietnam are, are much uh, much shorter. And, and these delays and the corruptions don't seem to hurt the major the donors like USAID, and that's probably because most of the uh, large donor agencies have good um, have have good diplomatic missions in those countries, and they can apply pressure on uh, through the ambassadors and the Ministry of Finance and, or, or Trade. They seem to hurt most of all the the, uh, the, the private sector and charities. Uh, and uh, the work of the, the Hudson Institute, looking at the the extent of, of private giving and 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 how that dwarfs official aid, makes this really a, an, an urgent. Uh, issue to, to tackle. Um, although, how many for time? I? Right. Um, there, there, of course, there, there are problems with uh, sales taxes on, uh, on medicines when they're uh, sold in countries. And, and, and if you look at just the, the, in South Africa, the sales tax that imposed on antiretrovirals, uh, uh, the amount of money, even if you look at the cheapest one, the amount of money that that would give if you exempted that is, is very significant. Uh, for for people that uh, really need the money to 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 afford a better diet and and uh, um, and, and to and to cope with with what's a very difficult life, um, a, a less well documented problem um, are the non tariff non tax and non tariff barriers. Um, and while there's no doubt that drug safety is is an important issue, the medical bureaucracies uh, in countries can also create enormous barriers to to entry. Um, uh, there's a there's a, an urgent problem in South Africa with uh, our medicine regulators, where medicines that have been uh, that have been authorised for use and, 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 and accepted in the in the US and the European Union and Japan are required to go through months and months of delays to just to to be sold uh, in 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 South Africa. There was the case a few years ago where uh, Namibia required the re-registration of all medicines. Uh, um, that, that registered prior to, to, to the independence of that country, because before then, uh, the, um, uh, the 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 medicine regulator was the same as the South African. When they became independent, they uh, uh, had got their own Ministry of Health and their own uh, medicines regulator. So, in, in in a case of shameless sort of bureaucracy bureaucracy building, they required all companies to re-register medicines that had been used in that country for, for years. And in a small country like Namibia, which is, represents a tiny global market for pharmaceuticals, this, this sort of thing is, is crazy. So I, let me conclude you know, by saying that import tariffs on, on medicines and medical devices, we find restrict access to medicines and hurt the poor the most. Sales taxes impose a highly regressive burden on, on some of the most vulnerable people. And in many countries, the medical bureaucracies are ripe for very urgent reform. Uh, all these state-imposed barriers to access can and, and should be removed. The, the long-term structural problems in health systems will take years to sort out, but the governments can take steps right now to remove the, the self-imposed barriers to access. The, the good news is that uh, the USTR, along with the Swiss and Singaporean governments, has initiated a WTO sectoral initiative to remove import tariffs um, uh, th through, the w through the WTO. Well, I mean, this, uh, 
the fact that the Doha talks are stalled or, or perhaps dead may be, may be a problem. On the other hand, it may provide an opportunity to move forward in some areas. Um, there, are, uh, op- there is opposition to, uh, to, to this initiative. Uh, but what we need uh, is for African governments to, to do the right thing. They uh, probably have the most urgent uh, healthcare problems, and, and they need to do the right thing, not because rich countries want them to do so or because there's pressure from uh, WTO members, but because it makes sense for their citizens. Okay, thanks. Thank you, Richard, and I, and I hope that uh, in your work on uh, tariffs on medical equipment and uh, medical drugs, you'll be as successful as dealing with the DDT. Uh, before uh, beginning the question and answer session, I uh, would like to conclude by making a few comments. I think that uh, one thing to, uh, that we have to look out for is uh, what happens with regard to political will on the African continent to move ahead with trade liberalization. And uh, uh, I will let uh, Andrew elaborate on that later, but I do think that uh, we will have to see um, uh, politicians in Africa take a uh, brand new approach to trade liberalization that we have seen uh, before. Um, before discussing this subject, let, let me give you an anecdotal story. A, a friend of mine here in Washington, D.C. is a former U.S. ambassador to a number of very important uh, African countries. Uh, one of the assignments he was given when uh, uh, he was still uh, the U.S. ambassador in the Clinton years was to negotiate a uh, food relief for uh, the people of southern Sudan. So off he went to see John Garang, who was the head of the southern, uh, southern Sudanese uh, rebel army, uh, and, um, uh, and he's, been, he's been really engaged in fighting the North between 1962 and 2004 in a bloody war that caused millions of lives and untold suffering across Sudan. Well, my, my, my acquaintance uh, wanted to get Garang's approval or his uh, acquiescence uh, to U.S. food aid. Uh, which Garang uh, graciously had given. But then he wanted to know how much of an import tariff he could impose on American food, uh, food, food aid. And uh, my, my friend had to, had to inform him that, of course, uh, that was absolutely unacceptable because if the U.S. Congress heard that uh, Garang was planning to make money out of U.S. food supply, food aid, uh, food aid wouldn't go anywhere. And let us not forget that John Garang was one of the more enlightened uh, leaders in Africa. He had a PhD in agricultural economics from the University of Iowa, Iowa, and uh, was generally considered to be a, a good leader. And wh- what does this story illustrate? Well, the story illustrates, I think, that, that a lot of African leaders do go around the world asking for developed countries to open up uh, to African exports. And indeed, this is incredibly important. Um, I think it was uh, British ambassador to uh, Warsaw, uh, Sir John Crawford, who said that uh, uh, CAP, common agricultural policy, was uh, one of the most stupid and destructive policies ever devised by men, give or take communism. And here in the United States, uh, Andrew is absolutely correct. It's not simply a European problem. This is an American problem. Uh, the, farm aid, uh, the farm bill is coming up for renewal. Uh, all the lobbies uh, on K Street and Washington, D.C. are arming for a mighty battle over the billions of, uh, of American money, that w- uh, American taxpayers' money that will be given to, uh, to our farmers in order to stay competitive. Um, obviously, we have a lot of work to do here in the United States as well. But it's this uh, 
it's this hypocrisy uh, that that is that is so shocking. Uh, let me let me give you a, a, a sense uh, of what what is being said. Um, Thabo Mbeki, president of South Africa, has called the current distribution of wealth in the world economic apartheid. At the United Nations recently, he talked about this common commitment for a global partnership for development cannot be transformed into reality when the rich and powerful insist on an unequal relationship with the poor. We, who represent the poor, know as a matter of fact that billions of poor people are increasingly becoming impatient because every year they hear us adopting a declaration after declaration and yet nothing practical is done to assuage the hunger pains that keep them awake at night. Only few and selected agreements are implemented, with outcomes that are clearly insufficient to alleviate the excruciating pain of the children who cannot cry anymore because to do so would invite more pain. Ladies and gentlemen, that is pure hypocrisy. Under President Becky's rule, every South African is earning less than he was 10 years ago. More importantly, South African government has been imposing tariffs on... Uh, um, on competing industries, especially in the apparel sector, with abandon. South Africa today is one of the most profligate users of anti-dumping measures in the world. The West needs to liberalize, but Africa needs to liberalize as well. What we need is a commitment on the African continent for reform. And the question is, are we ever going to get it? Thank you very much, and I will open it up to a question and answer session. Thank you very much. Is this on? Yeah. Um, Charlotte Hebebrand from the International Food and Agricultural Trade Policy Council. Um, thank you for those comments. Uh, we certainly would agree that uh, it's important for developing countries to decrease import barriers to each other because an increasing amount of trade is, in fact, taking place between developing countries uh, rather than a north-south pattern of trade. But maybe just, just to, to, to take your arguments a little bit further or to ask a, a couple of questions, I, I would be curious to know a little bit about... Uh, I know there's there's a, lo a long movement, a long history of uh, of pan-Africanism in Africa. So what what have been the the historical views on intra-African trade among Africans? Um, and then also, what is the track record of the regional trade agreements that do exist in Africa? Have those actually worked to increase trade among the countries, say in SADC or in in, in ECOWAS, what have you? And, and also, what is required for a good regional trade agreement? Do you need an engine? Um, and if so, uh, you, you, you spoke about the trade in Europe and the trade in North America. I mean, arguably there you have more engines that could actually help foster regional trade. In Africa, maybe those engines are not uh, – there aren't as many engines. You have South Africa, but is that enough for a, a pan-African trade agreement to, to really work? Um, and then lastly, uh, your vision of a pan-African trade agreement, how would you view the external tariff that such a trade area would need? And maybe this ties in a little bit with the pharmaceutical question. Um, maybe there's an argument to be made among some that, uh, that they, uh, an external tariff is required in order to foster diversification away from some of the commodities or to encourage uh, more pharmaceutical industry uh, uh, in Africa. Um, but on the other hand, that okay, is well, raising a tariff. So just would welcome your views on those points. 
Okay, well, they're all very good questions. I think, um, first of all, I gave you some figures, and I think you've got the figures, of the way in which intra-African trade has declined um, and the uh, way in which uh, the rest of the world has got richer, and Africa uniquely has not done so. Um, and I think that whatever else one uh, says, uh, you can identify barriers all the way across uh, Africa to the uh, sort of uh, pan-African trading area I'm describing. Now, you, you ask what the figures are for ECOWAS and the South, South African trading area. I think you're, I don't know what they are, but I think you have to see them in the context of the overall figures, which I gave in, in my opening remarks, uh, that this is not a very successful arrangement. And uh, what we can do, this sort of takes me to your penultimate question, is to try and ensure that we uh, give uh, a helping hand to those African leaders who want to go down this route. We could provide them with uh, a secretariat resource somewhere in the region. We uh, could get them all together for the sort of conference I suggested. You can well imagine the possibility of having a conference um, held in London or somewhere else, which would try and help them to flesh out the technicalities, what, what, whether you would need to change local laws and so forth. All of that could be done. But at the end of the day, there are around the world examples of how this will help them to enrich uh, their country. And I'll, I'll just make one other point. Um, in looking at the aid debate in Africa... There are now a caucus of countries which are moving in the right direction, where they are liberalising their arrangements, where they show some respect for the rule of law, some respect for democracy and the growth of democracy, some respect for civil society, and where about 11 of them are countries which we can seriously entertain giving budgetary support to, because we know that they've got the mechanisms for ensuring the money isn't pilfered or corruptly... Uh, siphoned off into the Swiss bank accounts of African dictators. So if you take those countries and you build on what they've already achieved and you support them, not only can you then start to try and persuade them of this trading point, but they are a good example to other countries which have not come to that point of development about what can be done. And that is one of the ways of intensifying this argument. You ask about external tariffs. I really don't think we want to get into that. That would be to uh, start to allow the usage of a mechanism which we are intent on demonstrating both intellectually and practically doesn't work. Uh, let, let me take another question over there. Gentleman over there. Subcommittee on Africa. Uh, uh, Mr. Mitchell, your point about uh, intra-Africa trade is, is certainly well taken, but they already know that. You have, they have ECOWAS, you have SADC, you have COMESA, you have the SACU. They already know that. They talk about that all the time, but they don't do it. Now, part of it is the system, the trading system set up by the colonial powers was not set up for them to trade with each other. The, the uh, transportation systems are set up to go to Europe. Communications were set up to go to Europe and not through each other. That's part of it. But after independence, many of these nations still haven't made these changes that you're talking about. Why do you think it is that, that they haven't done it, since they already know the benefit of it? Well, you say that uh, they're all aware of the benefits of pan-African uh, trading. 
Um, I don't think you're right about that. I think what they're aware of is the benefit of bilateral trading negotiations between some of them. Um, and that's what there's been. And they're certainly all aware of that. And so this is something different. And this is a bigger idea. And I think you can build on it by trying to lead them from the advantages of the bilateral um, negotiations, to which I think you are referring, that this is something bigger. You're quite right about the, the trading uh, routes and so forth uh, from the colonial past. But it's one of the reasons why we need to develop capacity for trade in Africa. All the Glen Eagles, all the wealthy countries agreed that to aid for trade in terms of de building roads and so on, developing that capacity uh, is important. And my example uh, from Robert Guest's experience in the Cameroons uh, shows it's partly caused by that by infrastructure not going that way and that's a very important thing as well but what we've got to do is to work with the good in these some of these countries which now are trying to serve uh, the people who live there the leaders are trying to serve them we've got to work with the good of that and try and spread that more widely across Africa let me second what Andrew said about the um spread of free market ideas uh, ideas in Africa. I, I agree with him. I don't think it is as well known as, as it should be. Certainly um, actions of many African governments suggest that they do not appreciate uh, the, the beneficial nature of free trade. Um, the, the, the mercantilist approach they take uh, is, of course, in many ways very similar to the one taken by the United States, Japan, and the European Union. Problem is that if your tariffs are much higher and you understand every Liberalization to a step toward liberalization as a concession, then you are imposing uh, much greater harm on your on your country uh, than than if these concessions take place from a much lower base. And I think that one of the most fundamental uh, problems in Africa, as well as in the developed world, is the role of imports, the role that imports play in uh, increasing economic growth in a country. A lot of people are, of course, very interested in exporting, but they don't want the imports uh, from overseas coming to their country. Now, of course, imports increase specialization, and increased specialization leads to increased productivity. In other words, if you can get cheap inputs, you'll be able to produce cheaper outputs. And... Um, this is something that we need to we need to really push for for great understanding of in Africa. Sure, Richard. Just um, Gregory, just to sort of add to that, I think uh, you know South Africa has imposed some import quotas on uh, on Chinese apparel, um, but, as Europe. you know, which is kind of um, shutting the door after the horse has bolted, whatever the expression is, because the South African apparel industry is is pretty much at its death's door. But in any event, so uh, because it's kind of become politically popular, they impose these uh, quotas on, uh, on Chinese goods. Some of the retailers then said, well, okay, well, if we can't import from China, we'll have to source goods from Vietnam and Thailand and elsewhere. Uh, and a couple of weeks ago, the headline of the business report was that the deputy prime minister accused these retailers of treason. Now, that doesn't seem, you know, for going after, um, you know, to trying to source cheap products for their consumers uh, from other countries. That doesn't seem to me to be a good understanding of, of free trade or what happens to be beneficial for your citizens. Next question. I'm going to take the gentleman over there, and then we'll go up. 
Yes, my name is Paul Feketa. Uh, both, of the, both of the speakers have rightfully focused on the importance of, uh, of import tariffs, and certainly there are other barriers to trade. But let me let me focus on the on the import tariff issue as well. Uh, for most of the sub-Saharan African countries, uh, import tariffs are usually the most efficient way of collecting national revenues, and it usually constitutes, in most cases, the overwhelmingly largest portion of national revenues. So the question really becomes not whether they're desirous of lowering their tariffs and promoting free trade, I think many of them are, but it gets to the fundamental issue of whether these countries have a viable way of collecting tar- uh, uh, revenues in other fashions, which most cases they are not. Uh, so the question to the, to the speakers is how do you address this issue and you know, uh, how do you make it rec- be recognized that this is really more than just a trade issue? Well, there's a, there's a sort of macro and a micro uh, point uh, to what you say. I agree that uh, in many cases it is a powerful element of revenue raising. On the macro point, the fact remains that we are clear that uh, in terms of revenues, freeing up the trading restrictions that we talked about earlier over a period will have an effect many, many times the effect of the revenue base that you describe. But there's a micro point as well, uh, and we are conscious of this, which is that many uh, international aid agencies and governments are now uh, giving uh, support not only to building civil society in the way which I described in my remarks, but more deeply than that, to helping finance ministries understand about spreading the plurality of taxation, a lesson that we in Britain and America have long known about and ensuring that you have the mechanisms in place to collect tax where tax is due and that you build those systems. And I think that is aid money very well spent and it it helped to address the issue uh, in the medium term which you set out. Richard, do you want to comment? Uh, well, just just a quick comment you know, on, on this area that I've been looking at, which is you know, tariffs on medicines. The, the amount that's raised from medical tariffs is, is relatively small as a proportion, with a few exceptions, as I mentioned. Uh, when, you know, when it comes to removing something like medical tariffs, uh, on, on Wednesday we heard some stinging attacks on, on the World Bank uh, from Andrew Mwenda. Well, perhaps this is somewhere where the World Bank could play a very useful role in helping those governments to figure out where they can make up that shortfall from other... Um, other revenue sources. Well, also what uh, we've heard on Tuesday is that, uh, sorry, Wednesday, is that the Ugandan government only, only collects 10% of GDP in taxes, whereas the average for sub-Saharan Africa is something like 20%. So obviously they feel in Uganda that they have a long way to go in making their, uh, uh, their tax collection more efficient. Now, when it comes to the World Bank and the IMF, uh, th- there was an interesting conversation I had with the head of the office of the president of Mali about the way that uh, uh, the IMF and the World Bank work cross-purposes when it comes to trade liberalization. Because uh, what the World Bank is very interested in is uh, uh, elimination of tariffs, uh, including import tariffs. And what the IMF is interested in is is balancing the the fiscal uh, part of the Malian budget. So you hear constantly that Mali has a problem with, uh, with, with cotton. They can produce it, but they cannot process it in Mali. Well, one of the reasons why it's difficult to process anything in Mali is that if you are going to import a machine for processing of cotton, it's going to cost you the price plus import tariff and VAT. Uh, the World Bank has been pushing the Malian government to decrease these tariffs, and the IMF has been pushing the Malian government to keep them 
because otherwise the, uh, the budget of Mali is going to be out of whack. And these two institutions literally exist across the street from one another. Yes, sir, in the back. Hello, Steve Landy from Manchester Trade. Thank you for bringing these topics to our attention, particularly the relationship between liberal trade and... Oh, please speak louder and... Thank you very much. For thank you. Thank you for bringing this to the attention, particularly the linkage between liberal trade and the pharmaceutical and the health problem and so on. However, to be blunt, I have never read a poorly a prepared research, in, research document or a speech that was designed to address the issue of Pan-African Union, Pan-African Free Trade. The traditional way to look at this issue for people who have been in the field is to say, what do the Africans want? What is the Africans' theory? The Africans have a very basic theory towards free trade agreement that they do not need paternalistic conferences and some nation capital to discuss, and, to discuss, and that's called the building block approach. They would like to set up the regional economic communities, and they have four or five ones, which are mentioned even in the paper I looked at. They take steps. They all have their different paths for arriving at regional integration, mainly aimed through trade liberalization. L let's make it slightly quicker so that we can get more questions. Quicker, Thank you. It's very disappointing because your whole sentence on regional economic community in this paper is one line. No background where it says, though African trading blocks do exist, movements of goods are seldom free. Too often, the only tangible result of regional trade is the creation of bloated bureaucracy. No footnote. The bottom line is, and I'll put it in two sentences if you want, is that there is a regional economic community. They do have a theory. They have decided, every study has decided what is lacking in Africa is infrastructure development. You use aid for trade, whether it's in the economic EPA economic partnership agreements, whether it's in Agroa, whether it's up in okay. the WTO. So the point I would like to raise is, well, how can you give a speech, how can you call this topic pan-African free trade and not even talk about the unbelievable progress made in the regional trade agreements and okay. then the shortage of infrastructure capital, which is really what is preventing changing the colonial road patterns that was exactly mentioned by the speaker I get here. your point. Okay, let me, let me try to answer because I think that you are referring to my paper as opposed to Andrew's speech. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, I think that one of the ways in which you can discern whether um, regional uh, trade agreements have been successful or not is what is happening to African productivity and its ability to compete with, uh, uh, with uh, exports uh, internationally. And there is no question that despite the proliferation of these regional agreements, no question that in spite of lowering of tariffs in the West, no question that in spite of uh, preferential trade agreements, African share of global exports has been declining, as Andrew pointed out, uh, from 6% of global trade to less than 2%. Now you take out South Africa, you get 0.6% of international trade, which is, which is on, uh, or, uh, that is dominated by Africa. So clearly, we are not getting the kind of, the kind of productivity increases that we would like to see from, uh, uh, from trade liberalization. Um, one, of the, one of the things that is described at length in the Economic Freedom of the World Report, which is published uh, by the Fraser Institute and Cato, is that the uh, productivity increases are highly correlated 
with economic freedom. The more open your economy is, the higher it tends to grow. Uh, and uh, and so if we are not seeing the uh, productivity gains in Africa, well, the reason is that all of these uh, trade agreements that are internal to Africa are not working. Maybe there is a scope for a another big push that may be consistent with what Andrew is saying and with Andrew's proposal. Do you want it? Yeah, I mean, I think I think your you know this is a debate, and your remarks are welcome in the context of it being a debate. Um, and I think your your most of your comments were directed more to your paper than to my speech. But in terms of three of the things you mentioned, I did indeed deal with them in the speech. The infrastructure points you made, the aid for trade points you made, I I, I addressed directly. And I sort of indir- indirectly addressed your point about not patronising African governments, because it's a very dangerous argument, this. Of course it is true we should not patronise anyone. But equally, uh, there has been a sort of feeling that African governments, because they're poor, don't have to face up to certain norms in life, one of which is providing uncorrupt government. And so... I was at pains to make the point in my speech that one of the ways we could facilitate this would be to offer a conference, offer secretariat location, offer support. They don't have to take it, but it's a narrow line, I agree, we don't want to patronise people. But in the end, what can we do to help? We're looking for a way to try and help and assist bring poor people out of poverty. Uh, Most of the Asian countries will reach the Millennium Development Goals. Africa mostly won't reach those goals. We have a moral duty to help. Um, You know, it's difficult. But I think myself that it's not a patronising approach. It's an enabling approach. And that was another point I made in my speech, that we should do our best to enable. And it's an offer. It's not not trying to force them into some sort of behaviour they don't want. Yes, sir. In America, I think in this year, we've completed the super, the Eisenhower superhighway system. It generates something like 12 to $16 billion a year just in income generated in its use. Why can't you build from Cairo to Johannesburg a superhighway system, putting the money in the form of aid, developing the very nature, encouraging individual income development and corporations to do that work specifically instead of instead of what you're talking about giving aid where it's not used properly in other words earmark it for specific purposes use basic guidelines and say okay we want and and have the africans say where they want the highways to go where they want to meet up at the border, and if they're off, they got to do it themselves. Okay. It's a great, it's a great idea, uh, and it doesn't cut across the aid-giving point I was making at all. Uh, the answer to your um, question, I fear, lies in the remarks I made about conflict resolution, and that in order to have such a road going in the way that you suggest, there would be there would be some difficulties in its route and its location and its benefit at the moment. But uh, certainly, in principle, I think that uh, improving the infrastructure significantly across Africa as well as down Africa is at the heart of Africa being able to trade effectively with the rest of the world. Uh, part of the part of Why don't the. Why we try and take some questions? Why don't we try and, because there's a lot of people who want to ask questions. All right, we can, we can do that. Um, over there, and then over there. Let's say two. Okay, one there, one there.
Aaron, Aaron Imperial with OPIC. I was just wondering if any of our panelists could comment on bilat- bilateral initiatives such as um, AGOA, African Growth uh, and Opportunity Act. Or um, I, I know that this is not a conference focused on that sort of these sort of issues, but I was wondering if anybody had any um, opinions on those and how they could help African development or not. Thank you. Uh, and and gentlemen over there. Uh, John Kerry Kerry, IGAO, but I'm representing myself here. Um, I, I share your ideas in terms of trying to have a free and fair trade in Africa in terms of trying to at least remove those informal uh, barriers. However, I question your view of the potential for this Pan-African trade in the sense of this. You quote things like there's a lot of trade in terms of South-South trade in Asia and all that. What we Can have you to just speak a tiny bit louder? I'm going okay. To go, I'm what we have to remember is that, for example, the South-South trade in Asia, you have to take into account the multinationals. They have that South-South trade going on because multinationals basically make the spare parts in one country and ship them to another country, for example, from Singapore, ship them to China. China puts them together, brings them here. So what you have is Singapore will have a trade surplus with China. China will have a trade surplus with the United States. When you are calculating these numbers, you have to take into account the role played by multinationals. Okay. Uh, so you have to be very, very careful. So I question the potential for the... I know that there's some potential for Pan-African trade, but I'm not sure how much that there is. You have to be very careful when you quote those numbers. The, I, the first question, I, I didn't fully hear it. Was this to do with the anything but arms? I go on, anything but, what do you think about bilateral trade uh, liberalization as opposed to a you know, multilateral, like we are seeing in WTO? So. Well, I think that the, there will be a lot of bilateral deals if the WTO does not uh, proceed to a conclusion. And it is, uh, at the very least, suboptimal. But uh, anything that frees up the trading system um, and if those are the sort of bilateral trading deals you're talking about, then that is better than nothing. But the world would be wise to focus on getting a proper result to the Doha round um, and not going off into this sort of cat's cradle of uh, side deals, bilateral deals, which make a rules-based system um, like uh, we're trying to achieve out of Doha uh, much more difficult later on. And I'm multinational, multinational corporations. Yes. We're in favor. <laughs> we are in favor. Okay. Uh, quick point about AGOA and everything but arms. I think that AGOA, um, uh, 86% of all exports from Africa under AGOA are petrol uh, and petrol-related products. Uh, there, has, there have been some increases in non-petrol products, but those are declining because of competition from China, Vietnam, and so on. So I think that the problem with AGOA and everything but arms is the same like the problem with building a road across the African continent. And uh, in addition to what Andrew was saying about conflict resolution, I think it has to do with the underlying business environment in Africa, which is to say that you can have a road, you can have uh, free trade agreements with whoever you like, but if your businesses cannot get off the ground because of uh, corruption, but also, very importantly, over-regulation, you have a problem. And if you look at the... Af- uh, at the um, doing business in the World Report, which is a World Bank publication coming up every year, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll find out that uh, Africans, uh, African businessmen suffer from uh, some of the most onerous uh, regulation 
anywhere in the world. And as for multinationals, well, I can bet you that Africa has fewer, Africa as a whole has fewer multinationals than Hong Kong standing alone. So I don't think that the problem of Africa is too many multinationals. I think it's too few. And indeed, there are examples of multinationals operating in Africa who do a huge amount of good in the communities uh, into which they're selling. Now, we have time for one more question. Anyone? Gentleman, how are you in front? Uh, just wait for the microphone, please. Robert Kirk with the Services Group. It's really an observation that uh, everything you've been saying points to the fact that the African countries can actually make the change on their own. They don't need to go to the United Nations or the World Trade Organization. And the outcome of the WTO is extremely important, promises to bring substantial returns. But the, um, many of the reforms can be made unilaterally by changing the regulatory systems at home and making it easier to operate. And there's just an observation supporting that. And that tariffs alone are not the problem. Rules of origin are frequently a problem in regional trade agreements, in both within Africa and on the bilateral side. Okay. That's, that's, that's true. Uh, you're, you're, I agree entirely with your last point. Uh, on your earlier point, um, let, me say, let me say this. I think that I, mean, I would favour, if I had supreme power in European Union negotiations, I would say... Let's sweep away all European protectionism. Anyone can sell into this market. We're going to take these walls down because, in the end, I believe in free trade and I believe that that is self-defeating. So, so uh, what, I would, what I would say is that for us unilaterally to do it is better than just to leave everything as it is and not have a WTO deal. But nevertheless, if you are an African country, of course you can, you can do it on your own. But what do most African countries have to sell? They have to sell their uh, inexpensive labor. And actually, quite a lot of them have niche or wider-than-niche agricultural goods to sell. And they can't do it without a deal at the WTO. They can try and negotiate some bilateral deals for their markets, and that, too, is better than nothing. But in the end, it's better for them to have a deal at the WTO. And if you look at the uh, work that's been done on what the value of a WTO deal would be, you can see very specifically how it would benefit African countries as well as America, as well as European countries. So if only we can get this deal together, it is a win for everyone. And it, we are quite close, you know. I mean, I think that it became impossible for America to do a deal because we were getting too close to your midterm elections. Um, it, it is possible now, and, and I heard yesterday at the White House that President Bush has said, has given instructions that he wants this negotiation to succeed, and he wants it given more oomph and some monkey glands now as we go into the end of the year. And so it is possible to do it, and it is possible for the Europeans to put their bid in too, because Peter Mandelson was getting closer. His, his offer ahead of Hong Kong last year was absolutely unacceptable, but he was getting closer in the run-up to the breakdown in Geneva to saying that if Europe was the logjam, then uh, more negotiation could happen. So, you know, I, I, I take your point, particularly your latter point, but in the end, what everyone's got to focus on is not, oh, well, you know, it doesn't matter because the world will survive. The world will survive, but let us go for the best because it matters to everyone in the end that we get a deal out of this round. Richard, you get the last word. Uh, <laughs> okay. Thank you very much all for coming. Please join us for lunch upstairs. Thank you.